This is an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. I'm your host, Holly. Joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This is a non-profit, self-organized amateur podcast exploring the history of madness and the way that history continues to influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of a shared past. This episode contains mentions of psychosis, hallucinations, and corpses. Maya, what's kind of your take and context for the Vikings? You know, I feel like I have treated the Vikings with a fair amount of suspicion because I feel like all of the narratives that I've been given are highly related to media and pop culture, movies, and I just don't trust the historical accuracy of those depictions, and I'm not that interested in war. So I've just kind of left it alone. So as it turns out, I know way more about this subject than I should. (laughs) (laughs) What is the right amount to know about Vikings? I... A medium amount. A medium amount. I think a medium (laughs) amount. Whatever that is. An undetermined number of units. I will say that my mom did an ancestry DNA test because she's very into genealogy. And when she learned that she had Scandinavian ancestry, her next step was exactly what you'd expect. She bought an axe. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So, but dispelling like a couple myths, because, you know, because there's kind of this idea that they were like these ubermensch super warriors, um, which isn't true. They were just, you know, they were guys like they were warriors for sure, but they were just they were just little guys. They were just little guys. And there's even some really cool research. Um, they did some DNA testing and they actually found out that some of the Vikings from burial sites were like from Asia. Fascinating. So, like, it was a cosmopolitan group of people because they were pirates. Oh, so we're talking about kind of a polyglot, multi-ethnic society almost. Yeah, they just wanted to hit those monasteries. <laughs> like, they, they knew that there was treasure there, and so they went for it. Like, these are pirates. But they were also um, very savvy businessmen. Hmm. And they founded the city of Dublin. Yes. Among others. If you haven't put it together yet, we're talking about the Norse and Icelandic peoples, um, German people broadly. Do you know where the name Norse comes from? Um, Yeah, it just means North in, I think, Anglo-Saxon. So before we talk about the Norse and Icelandic peoples, we need to talk about Germanic people more broadly. We also need to make the distinction that a Viking was a profession. The Norse are the people. Great. That's helpful. Um, But before we talk about the Norse in any more detail, um, we need to talk about Germanic people more broadly. I mean, Viking does sound like a pretty cool thing. Yeah, you go out... as your business card. You go out a Viking. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Norse and my job is Viking. I got a Vike all over the place. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I'm going to Vike all up and down this coast. They're never going to know what hit them. (laughs) Yep, that's how France felt. (laughs) So we need to go all the way back to the Roman Empire. So we're we're taking this way back, like we need a kind of a whooshing time machine sound effect to really make this more authentic. Yeah. So the Vikings, as we know them, are a medieval construct. Mm. 
but we need to go before the fall of the Roman Empire. And in Western Europe, during that this classical period, there is a lot going on. There are wars, there are invasions, there's the Teutoburg Forest event, um, <laughs> which is something to look up on your own time. That's, again, for another podcast. But what's important to us today is that one of the largest people groups in Western Europe, the Germans did not have widespread use of written language before the introduction of Latin. And it's actually hypothesized um, that the runes that people associate with the Norse and with the German-speaking peoples are actually just modifications of Latin characters. Oh, so it's a kind of adaptation of the Roman alphabet. Yes. For local use. And so we think of it as having these ancient roots, but it actually may have been a more contemporary cultural response to something that was coming in from the outside. Mm-hmm. That's the theory. Why did they look so cool then? Just good, good design, yeah. good aesthetics. Good graphic designers up there in the, in the North. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> They're just dropping off their graphic design business cards like to anyone that they don't pillage. Yeah, I mean, and those cards were pretty valuable because you had to hand carve them. Mm-hmm. Just on those little stone slabs or like a mm-hmm. piece of wood. Yeah, you got to chip them out, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you're on a boat trying to sail across the North Sea. You got to have something to do. And how. <laughs> <laughs> What this means, and why this tangent is important, is that any surviving written records that we do have of Germanic peoples were written by Greeks and Romans. So totally unbiased. Yeah, people that they were trying to invade and colonize, um, because they had done so to the Celts very successfully. Like, Julius Caesar invaded and massacred most of Gaul, or what we would now call France, and invaded into what's now modern-day England. They wanted to do the same thing to the Germans because the Romans are imperialistic bastards. <laughs> right. Um, they were unsuccessful, ultimately, or at least it was a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, so they're encountering people groups that have a level of indigeneity, the lands that they're invading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there was a lot of movement, like there was a lot of exchange between the Celts and the Germans, mm-hmm. and they would fight wars against each other and all that business, but um, the, the Romans were like an existential threat. And the Romans and the Greeks are the ones that are writing about them. History, what a discipline. Yeah, no shit. So this effectively means that we can't go nearly back as far into German history as we did with the ancient Greeks. Because we're being filtered through their lens. Yeah. Um, Furthermore, by the time that Rome fell in 476, depending on how you mark the end of Rome, Christianity was well established. It's impossible to know what degree of blending occurred in the following centuries, but in the Middle Ages, Christian monks worked exceptionally hard to convert and synchronize pagan belief systems, making it even harder for historians to discern pagan belief systems and historical philosophies surrounding things like disability, madness, and all the rest. So we're thinking our way back using sources that are mediated through the lenses both of conquering cultures and of christianity and what we do know may have been heavily affected already between efforts to blend local and indigenous practices with christianity as part of a conversion effort correct so but it gets worse 
Um, what makes this even more difficult is that during the late Roman period, cultures from around the Mediterranean looked to copy Roman-style military and bureaucracy because it had worked for Rome and they wanted to copy and adapt and be competitive with Rome because Rome's kind of collapsing at this point in time. This roots out traditional practices. And were the Germanic peoples one of those peoples who was looking to emulate Rome at this time? Yes. So they were maybe engaged in their own project of repressing historical belief systems in favor of a more Roman model. Right. So these changes would be solidified after the fall of Rome as all of these groups sought to capitalize on the power vacuum and make empires of their own. And so the kingdoms that we see in the Middle Ages are, you know, in the quote-unquote Dark Ages, are really all of these chiefdoms becoming kingdoms trying to become empires, vying for power in the way, in, you know, in the, the, the wake of Rome falling. So to spell it out, I think it's pretty clear, but if we're laying this kind of history alongside the history that we've talked about in our overview episodes, this would, this progression would lay alongside the classical madness episode and the medieval madness episode. Yes. And possibly even some of the prehistory, because these ideas have deeper roots, but it's harder to verify. Yep, and we'll get into those deeper roots um, in just a little bit. But real quickly, this so all of this also means that by the time we get to sources written by Germanic peoples, we're well into the Middle Ages. And thoroughly Christianized and thoroughly exposed to Greek thought. And that means that they're removed from some of the source ideas that we're interested in by a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so much drift can happen in that time. So it'd be like us being accountable to represent ideas from Europe or from what's now the United States from the year 1000. Yep. Definitely a filter being applied and some lost knowledge. Yeah, and to that end, in the 1800s, Jacob Grimm, who we've already talked about before, Jacob Grimm of the Brothers Grimm, lamented the amount of German mythology and folklore that had been lost to these forces. I mentioned a little bit earlier, we're going way, way back. But first, um, we've been using the term Germanic people, like, a lot. Let's define that. Yeah, we should probably have defined that up front, but we're getting to that now. Um... We're defining Germanic people as consisting as groups living in modern-day Germany, Austria, Denmark, Switzerland, Scandinavia, Iceland, and kind of neighboring regions. These people did move around a lot, but generally these, these are kind of like the core regions that they came from. So a little bit about their prehistory. Um, they were actually invaded by the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Wow, we haven't talked about them in a while. Yeah, so from episode one... And this is kind of a mysterious people group whose influence we continue to see in our language. And that's kind of how we reconstruct an understanding of them. Yes, exactly. They were extremely influential and they either invaded in a war context or like in a cultural context. There was a lot of exchange. So much exchange that they um, are thought to have brought them gods like Woden and Donar who you may not recognize, but this is actually Odin and Thor. Fascinating. So those gods have some pretty ancient roots from even a different cultural 
group, potentially. Yeah, um, and even from a different continent. Because hmm. Donar also shares similarities with an Indian god whose name escapes me at the moment, um, and Zeus. So, just to really say it out loud, this idea of kind of European purity being contained in the Germanic peoples is already just patent bullshit. Yes, exactly, which is like a further deconstruction of the Viking superiority myth. Right, these were um, multi-ethnic cultures who'd engaged in cross-cultural exchange and borrowing. Yeah, Germanic peoples made it to North Africa and occupied Carthage for a while. The Vandals. Like, this is like a widespread people group. We don't endorse the occupation of Carthage. I am upset that Carthage lost yeah. against Rome. Like, I think it's really a shame. But that's, a again, for another podcast. <laughs> so these Germanic groups on mainland Europe would eventually expand out to Scandinavia, Iceland, Greenland, Britain, Ireland, Normandy, Eastern Europe, Russia, Vinland, which is also called Canada. What can't they do? <laughs> they they traveled a lot. They were a very migratory people. <laughs> With that background out of the way, let's talk about some disability. Great. So disability in the Norse pantheon is surprisingly prevalent. Um, the examples that we're going to talk about today are the gods Tyr and Odin. Both of these gods have self-inflicted wounds, some of whom come from conflict, but are still reflective of an attitude and a recognition of health by the culture that they come from. So we're focusing really on physical disabilities here and talking about the prevalence of physical disability in the pantheon. Yes. There is mentions of mental illness in the sagas, and we'll get into those in a little bit. So what kind of disabilities did Tyr and Odin have? So Tyr, and I'm going to give the brief version of the story, um, sacrifices one of his hands in order to stop a monster. Um, and the interesting thing about Tyr is that, in, in contrast to the Celtic story that we learned last week, where losing an arm means you don't get to be king anymore... Tyr gets to remain as Tyr as he is. He holds his place in society as a god of justice and a god of war. Um, he maintains his, his place in the pantheon, and what he's seen, um, what he does is seen as noble and necessary and brave. So he doesn't lose station for his disability. Odin is a really interesting example because he goes to... Um, a place called Mimir's Well for knowledge, because he wants to know everything and he really puts a value on that. And the cost of that knowledge is his eye. And so he plucks out his own eye without hesitation for knowledge. And so he actually gains stature from this disability because he's Odin the Allfather now. You know, he knows most things, if not everything. And so there's this idea that he gains a different kind of sight. Yeah. And perhaps a superior or more cosmic one. Yeah, and that the trade for knowledge is worth a high price. Um, and there are other examples of him wounding himself and, and things like that, but the eye is the most famous example. And one of the lenses that we've learned is this idea of acquired 
disability versus disability that somebody's born with. And both of these are an example of acquired disability in a kind of, not exactly a martial context, but in the context of leadership where a part of the body is being sacrificed for what's considered an important reason. Yeah. So to contrast with these two, we have a maybe real life person Hmm. with a disability that they're born with Hmm. to contrast with these two. And his name was Ivar the Boneless, or Imar. Um, and this is occurring in the mid-9th century. So in, you know, well into the Middle Ages. Ivar was born with weak bones as a result of a curse, allegedly. Interesting. And so with these weak bones, like, obviously he's going to have some mobility issues. He's, they're, they're going to be prone to breaking because they're so brittle. Like, mm-hmm. he has to be very careful. He probably needed a lot of assistance getting around, and there were probably certain activities he couldn't participate in. We don't know to what extent, because we don't have that level of detail, but he has a physical disability. And he wound up growing up to lead the great heathen army against the peoples of what we would now call Britain, or, technical term, the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy. <laughs> so f- the great heathen army was basically this giant coalition of Norse and Germanic people who marched on what's now Britain to absolutely ugly shell, and that's what they did. It's a very famous military campaign. And we assume that with an assembled army that each component of groups kind of gathering together would have their own leadership structure. So to lead Mm. that army, you're superseding other leaders. Yeah, you had to be able to manage the politics of all of the people who were involved. Mm -hmm. So we can say that Ivar the Boneless was respected for his tactical prowess, his ability to, you know, actually command the armies in an effective way, his logistics, his understanding of um, what it takes to keep an army fed. Um Holly's really into supply lines. uh, Supply lines, they're extremely important. (laughs) Especially when you're in foreign territory, you know. Critical. Um, And then he he had to have been politically cunning, and he had to have been respected for all those things to wind up leading the great heathen army. So do we know if this is a real person? We're, as far as I can tell in my reading, I'm convinced. Mm. I'm convinced that he was real, um, more scrupulous scholars cast um, a little bit more doubt onto whether or not he was a real person. I think it's also worth noting whether his story is rooted in bare historical fact or whether it's a story being told. Both are important. Mm -hmm. That at least it reveals an openness to the idea of somebody who had a physical disability being a leader in a military context. Yeah. I think I'm interested in all of these examples because we talked a little bit about associations between ableism and patriarchy um, and how the consolidation of male gender and um, the emphasis on kind of physical strength and warrior societies kind of reinforced both patriarchy and ableism at the same time. And so in the case of um, the mythological examples of Tyr and Odin, their disabilities are self-inflicted and are related to their kind of warrior leadership, at least mm. in part. 
Yeah, and I think an important piece of context that some, you know, people might be subconsciously aware of, but I think is worth bringing out into the open, is the concept of Valhalla, mm. which Valhalla and technically Folkvangir, but we don't need to get into that. The idea that you're supposed to die in battle and go to the afterlife that's set aside for those who died in battle, which is this great and glorious and wonderful place where you feast and fight and drink all day. And that's, you know, the the place you're trying to get to, especially as a Norse man. And so, it to me, it stands to reason that there are some people who are going to get hurt along the way to Valhalla. There are people who are going to get hurt and not die, and they're going to wind up disabled from battle, and that those people would be celebrated, giving up their bodies, in a way, to the cause. Right, and so it's like, how is warrior status a mediating factor in this perception of disability? So, if, the, if a wound or a lasting disability is acquired in the course of pursuing this warrior ideal, does that counterbalance perceptions of ability and disability in this context? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a possibility. Yeah, and unfortunately we won't know because of all the reasons that we talked about before. <laughs> right, right. From here on out, we're going to be talking about specifically Norse and Icelandic concepts of emotion and internal balance and madness. But why are we talking about Norse and Iceland specifically when the Germans were such a dispersed people? Well, Norse and Iceland are theoretically great case studies because they were isolated from Christianity more so than other parts of Europe and free to develop their own cultural nuances, Iceland is also where we get most of our Norse myths. Right, and we think the relative isolation of being an island people may have allowed those stories to linger in their original form for longer. Yeah, that's the thought, or at least something closer to the original form. So just um, to back up, we're seeing the Germanic people as the umbrella term, and underneath it we have... The Norse and the Icelandic people. Yes, correct. Great. Just checking in. That's a great, great clarification. So let's talk about Norse philosophies of illness. Um, at this point, family care is prominent in the 1200s. Family care as opposed to like formal institutions. And are you thinking of madness specifically when you're talking about this or illness in general? Illness in general. So, again, the Muslim world at this point in time has hospitals, or mm -hmm. what we would refer to as hospitals. The Norse do not. They have family care. And there was a big focus on environmental causes of illness, and they're largely operating from a Galenic model. So already we've lost the, the pagan thread a little bit, and mm -hmm. there's, there's a Greek influence here. But with that said rationality was associated with the heart and motor function was associated with the brain fear was attributed to an excess of humoral phlegm and what is phlegm again phlegm is one of the humors so the humoral system's back baby <laughs> <laughs> and it was socially harmful for men to be fearful sagas um which are these family and historical tales that are often reflective of history, but not necessarily rigorously historical. So these sagas are full of examples of emotional trauma and cognitive impairment. 
laws in Norse and Icelandic society had to consider mental state and mental illness in regards to crimes and laws. So if you were thought to be mad, a judge, and I'm just going to use the term judge for simplicity, a judge would have to take that into consideration. The community has to acknowledge your madness as a contributing factor to your crime. The Norse were particularly litigious, like they were big on laws and rules and suing each other and all of this business. And so we've got this extensive legal code to draw from, and there's these really interesting examples. For example, mental illness was grounds for divorce. Women had a lot of divorce rights. I um, love to see it. Yeah, which makes them very unique in, in the, the Western world. And I think without necessarily fully understanding how madness was perceived socially at least legally we can see the existence of madness to a great enough prevalence that there's a legal defense around it there's an understanding that it affects interpersonal relationships to a degree that it might be a justifiable cause for divorce mm -hmm. there's also this interesting tension whereas christianity is kind of creeping in and the norse people will eventually convert to christianity they just held out for a really long time and that's a story for another podcast um <laughs> there's evidence of christians pathologizing pagan traditions mm, so engaging with pagan traditions might be kind of considered a form of madness Mm -hmm. what, to the Christians, yeah. What kind of traditions are we talking about? We're talking about sorcery. We're talking about being a werewolf, which is not quite the werewolf that you know most of us think of when we think of werewolf. It's a little bit more complicated and culturally bound. And also pathologizing being a berserker, which was a kind of warrior that would allegedly take substances and fly into a battle frenzy and go and kind of fuck up the other team. Um, <laughs> so the mind, again, existed in the breast, behind the heart, and was referred to kind of euphemistically as the castle of the mind, the ship of memory, the vehicle of contemplation. A tiny heart with little blood would know no fear. So again, there's this pathologization of fear kind of in a similar way to the humoral theories they're saying if you have less blood which is one of the four humors you will experience less of this emotion and you will be in balance that's a humoral take and a somatic one so this idea of fear is madness fear is undesirable where does fear come from it comes from the blood the blood is flowing through the heart which is generating emotions and if there's less of it there's less fear. Yeah. And they thought that air was supposed to be in the arteries, not blood. Air would enter the body kind of porously. I'm curious how this association was made between excess blood and excess fear. Although the humors must have a lot to do with it. Yeah. It, it would be really, really interesting to know. And unfortunately, at least for the information that I found for working on this episode, we just don't know. And blood is one of the humors. Blood is one of the humors. To be clear. So this connection between blood and emotion and balance, that all sounds very humoral. Yeah, because the Greeks also, remember, saw excess of emotion as a form of madness. And so here, fear is an excess of emotion. 
And in a, again, in a warrior society, this makes a certain amount of intuitive sense to me. I'm not sure how historical that is, but mm -hmm. there's this kind of social project to diminish fear responses. Mm -hmm. And that's relevant to how people perform in this warrior context. Yeah, especially in a warrior context where something like the berserker exists, mm -hmm. where they're, if I'm not mistaken, running around naked except for a bear pelt... Um, high on mushrooms, charging at the other team. <laughs> like, so they would also say that a fearful person was without mind, which kind of contradicts the idea that fear was based on anatomy. Hmm. So we've got these conflicting models within the system, and w based on the historical context that we've talked about so far, that's not surprising. So we've either got too much blood or too little psychic force, or will, maybe. Right, and so... If I had to guess, I would guess that the the too much blood is a humoral idea and the losing your mind because you're fearful is a pagan idea. Fascinating. And that's that same kind of, feels like that same psychic origins of madness versus physical origins of madness that we see throughout the whole history. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way before. That's really interesting. So even in Norse society, there's a disagreement about whether or not madness is a somatically based or a psychically based condition. I mean, and not to make too broad a historical comparison, but it kind of reminds me of the environment we navigate today, where on the one hand, I'm being told I have a chemical imbalance in the brain. And on the other hand, I'm being told that I had a fucked up childhood. Mm -hmm. What's causing my anxiety? What's causing my depression? I could follow either model, but I'm kind of coexisting at a rough impasse between the two. There was also the belief that being fearful means one was more exposed to the elements or to demons and kind of all the rest, but definitely and especially less resilient to the cold. And then a people that lived in a really cold environment, all of the, it feels like all of these negative things are being grouped together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you become weaker the more fearful that you are. So they also had culturally specific diagnoses like thunger, um, which translates to heavy. And it means that you're not acting your usual self. You're grieved, you're bereaved, and that this condition could arise out of jealousy. And they had a couple culturally bound specific terms and diagnoses, but this is one that I find really interesting. Yeah, I'm fascinated in this idea of kind of physical heaviness. You know, mm -hmm. that there is a kind of connection between a sort of body-based weight that seems connected to kind of the psychic weight that we bear, and that that in itself is a condition. Yeah, it also interests me how, one, this sounds a little bit like depression. It sounds a lot like depression <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah. But it's also distinct from depression. Like, mm -hmm. it's got a different flair to it, and I also like that it could arise from jealousy, you know, you it's like there's this longing, this pining after something. Right. Which feels um, connected to grief, which I'd never really thought about of this connection between jealousy, you're longing for that which you don't have, and grief, you're longing for that which you've lost. And this is, I think, one of the dangers of culture homogeneity. And there are books that are written about this for a more modern context and for especially uh, the context of U.S. colonialism within medicine. 
but if we all just have a small handful of words to describe diagnoses, we have less of a diversity of experience to kind of talk about and to examine our experiences with. Yeah, and all of these ideas arise from both cultural context and human example. And so there's people behind this idea, which means that people have the capacity to experience it, which means that it could be meaningful in particular situations. Yeah, and think about all the cultures that have been lost or kind of trampled over the course of different wars and colonial efforts, and the ideas that they had about mental illness and about their own internal experiences, and how we've lost those ideas. Because I would use Thunger... Mm-hmm. You know, like I would, I, it is similar to depression, but it's, to me, it's a little bit different and I would make that distinction. And it just kind of, it reminds me a little bit of the feeling that I have sometimes where I just like, I wake up and it's just a heavy day. Like mm-hmm. the metaphorical clouds have rolled in and I'm just kind of grinding it out and mm-hmm. waiting for it to pass. And there's a sort of like physicality and embodiment to that feeling. That's an aspect of depression, but not. It's not textbook, it's not the whole deal, but it's still kind of, it conveys an idea. And what we name things and how we talk about them helps us to explain to others what's going on with us. Yeah. So that's the other piece we lose is the sort of communicative nuance of when we're trying to group things into kind of clinical categories, sometimes we miss the chance to connect because we're not able to give things the specificity that would help create a more accurate understanding of what's happening and therefore how other people can support us. Yeah. So in addition to Thunger, there are other stories that contain depictions of people living with conditions that sound like things like autism or bipolar disorder, um, which is basically unheard of in any other European text at the time. Yeah, when we're looking back to do kind of pattern recognition of how did these descriptions match experiences I've had, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just not available. Mm -hmm. And so getting to see examples that like do have that resonance, it's not, it's not uh, accurate in a sense, but I also feel like there is a truth to recognition that's worth paying attention to. Yeah. All right. So ghost stories of madness. First one, there's a group of men sailing during the winter months and they wind up stranded on an island. They make a shelter. One of the men gets lost out in the dark for too long, goes mad, and dies. This is not a good day. No. Um, They bury the man, but the next night they're all huddled in the shelter, and there's a knock at the door. (gasps) Um, The restlessness from the dead man, the madness passes onto another man and so the story repeats sort of contagion absolutely icelandic people in the middle ages generally believed that madness was fatal and communicable um in iceland seeing the dead walk around was an established phenomenon in other regions of europe it would be considered to be a sign of severe mental illness so i think this is an example we both really like because I think it shows the importance of the cultural context in defining what madness is. Mm -hmm. If there's a generally accepted idea, then conforming to that idea is not madness. It's commonplace. It's participation in the cultural context. It's quote unquote normal. 
But if you deviate from that cultural context, that's where madness begins to be applied. Mm-hmm. It's not the th- it's not the specific thing you're doing. It's how that thing relates to what's considered to be normal. The dead were thought to hold and preserve emotions internally on their own. The dead have their own emotions. So like the flesh, the body, if the person dies with strong emotion, there's a retention of that. Yes. Ghosts always appear during the dark months and are sometimes associated with shows of light. Which makes sense because you have the Aurora Borealis, you have the Northern Lights. And that shit's mysterious. I mean... Yeah, I would probably lose it too if I saw that for the first time without any context. (laughs) Some of these ghost stories kind of coincide with epidemics, and there are examples of ghosts or the undead driving animals mad, and not just people. So, second story, our last story of the day, is the Saga of Grettir. Now, this is a much larger saga, but we're just taking the section that we want. So what's going on with Grettir? So there is a monster that's out killing livestock and killing people, just generally terrorizing the village. So I'm in my village minding my own business, and my livestock are being picked off one by one by a beastly beast. By some kind of creature. Some kind of creature. Yeah. So there's a man named Glam who is hired to guard a flock. But at some point, he takes the Lord's name in vain, so... You had one job, Glam. (laughs) Actually, you had two jobs. Guard the sheep and don't blaspheme. Is that so much to ask? (laughs) So this is an important note because right now, this is a Christianized story. Already. Already, it's a Christianized story. So the chain of events is based in concepts of Christian sin. At least in part, this could be a Christian context superimposed onto a pagan story. But we don't know. Right. I mean, it's tempting to think about, like, were there forbidden words or ideas or, you know, taboos that were unbreakable that might have been more culturally bound? We just don't know. Yeah, and interesting you bring that up, because in addition to taking the Lord's name in vain... Glam also spends the Yuletide out in the field instead of fasting and observing the holiday. So now, whether this was originally Yuletide and it got changed, or if it was always Yuletide, we will probably never know, but it's worth pointing out. Uh, Glam is attacked by the monster, but manages to kill it. Glam dies in the process. He's mortally wounded after killing the monster. Glam returns as a monster, kills livestock, jumps on rooftops, kills people. Just uh, assumes the mantle of the monster that he's killed. Who's watching the Watchmen? Uh, Grettir is. Oh! Um, So Grettir, our hero, shows up, fights Glam, and kills him. But Glam is able to place a curse on Grettir. Um, So Grettir is never to be stronger than he is right now. Sounds like he was doing pretty good, though. I mean... But he'll never be stronger than he is right now. It's just all a downhill slide from here. He's to have bad luck, and he is to be haunted by Glam's eyes glowing in the dark ever after. Grittier is already someone who struggled with impulsivity and anger. This will get worse throughout the rest of the saga, and will ultimately be his downfall. He also hallucinates specters in the dark 
and becomes fearful of it because of the trauma of the constantly hallucinating these eyes. And Glam's eyes are where we get the word glamour. It's interesting to me that in both this story and to go all the way back to Ivor the Boneless, disability is a curse. So I just want to acknowledge that that's a framework being employed here. Mm -hmm. Um, That Glam curses Gretir with this condition where there's essentially, I mean, to put our more modern labels on it, kind of emotional distress caused by hallucination. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not simply a kind of self-arising phenomenon, it's a punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's also environmental. It's something that happens to you from the outside. Maya, what are you still processing? I think I'm still processing the story of Ivar the Boneless. I find it really interesting and tempting to kind of read into, which I know is has its limits, but... I love the idea of this historical example. We've been talking a lot about kind of myth and narrative. Um, I'm personally really interested in history, so I'm intrigued by this kind of view back into history or a window back into history. And history also has to do with the stories and narratives that we tell. So there isn't a neat separation between these ideas, but I am interested in the opportunity to consider a historical example of a real person who experienced disability in this context. Mm-hmm. who was disabled and was a leader of people, a politician, a warrior. And I just am processing kind of that figure and how rare it is both kind of in the stories we're talking about and in the stories we tell ourselves now. Yeah, I think I'm still processing the stories we tell ourselves now because like th- this is rich. Right. Like, there is a lot here, and it's really interesting, and it's an angle on this culture that we don't normally see. I think the Greeks are a little bit different by contrast, because, like, we like the stories of hubris, we like the stories of these extreme emotions, and it's just so tied into these myths that we tell from the Greeks. And it's so influential in our own storytelling structure, and, you know, Mm -hmm. even in things like theater and things like literature, we see these themes kind of continue to be reflected on and carried out. So I think there's a familiarity to them that I feel less strongly with these stories. Mm -hmm. And I think the shock of unfamiliarity is always really instructive. So what about takeaways? Um, I would be a really poor Norse warrior. (laughs) (laughs) I am not about to get hired to bike around. I would say that my heart is bloody and knows plenty of fear. I think my takeaway is similar to something I said earlier, which is about like the cultural homogeneity, just the the colonial forces. And I think it's ironic that we're talking about colonial forces with what would later be considered a white society. Europe practiced on itself what it would do to the rest of the world never heard it put like that so i think we lost a lot of really good relevant meaning making we hollowed ourselves out first so that sense in the u.s of we've homogenized on top of homogenization that's been like a project and a process partly carried out by christianity but also by other forces for a really long time so and when i say we i'm talking about white people 
mm-hmm. we as white people have erased our own history first. Yeah. And so we've got these little bits and shreds that we can kind of try to piece together that we've tried to piece together in this episode. And you just do the best with that with what you can and just what a tragedy that is. And knowing that there are other cultures that got it much worse that are no longer with us even who could have enriched us all on top of the fact that not genociding people. (laughs) Yeah, generally what I would consider an important human goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to avoid genociding. Yeah. So, yeah, I think my takeaway is kind of, uh, is a little ominous. It's, It's looking at these colonial and culturally homogenizing forces and just a little taste of that here compared to what's been done elsewhere. So what book are we recommending? Since we are a book club, after all. We are a book club, um, except um, not recommending a book. I'm recommending a... You scalawag? Um, a graduate thesis paper. <laughs> 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 um, it's called Children of a One-Eyed God, Impairment in the Myth and Memory of Medieval Scandinavia by Michael David Lawson. Good job on your research, Michael David... you probably never thought that it was going to get shouted out like this but here we are hope you're proud of it i think it's a really interesting kind of reframing of norse myth mythology through like a a disability lens and i think gets into some details that we don't talk about as much And, and if if i could contribute anything to the norse mythology fandom it would be a a reframing of a lot of how we talk about these myths and so that we can re-cherish them and and re-engage with them kind of more more fully especially knowing that they are actively being used to fuel white supremacy yeah especially because if you add in the disability lens the white supremacy and the fascism they don't know how to handle that except for with fear and violence so this is a way for us to kind of wrestle these stories back from them Yeah, if we can understand them as, however problematically or incompletely, engaging with ideas of disability justice, let's say, really broadly, then maybe we have a chance to complicate them, at least in ways that make them less of a weapon to be used against us. Yeah, and then when we inevitably retell these stories, we can retell them with new themes and focuses. All right, I've been your host, Holly. I've been Maya. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there.